Welcome to the Clan McKenzie podcast. Alexander McKenzie, in his book, The Prophecies of the Bronze Seer, said this about Kenneth McKenzie. He said, he is beyond comparison, the most distinguished of all our Highland seers. And his prophecies have been known throughout the whole country for more than two centuries. The popular faith in them has been, and still continues to be, strong and widespread. Sir Walter Scott, Sir Humphrey Davy, Mr. Mort, Lockhart, and other eminent contemporaries of the last of the Seaforths firmly believed in them. Many of them were well-known and recited from generation to generation, centuries before they were fulfilled. Some of them have been fulfilled in our own day, and many are still unfulfilled. There's great intrigue and wonder about this character that we know as the Bronze Seer. Is he fact? Is he fiction? Is there truth to the man? Is there truth to the so-called prophecies? We sat down with Phyllis Hanna from the Ross and Cromartie Heritage Society, and we got her perspective on the Bronze Seer. The Brandseer foretold that, um, he foretold that the end of the Mackenzie line would die out. Um, it would die out with a, the chief, um, the last chief would be a die, would die a deaf mute. And he ended up getting measles or scarlet fever or something, and he ended up being that. He was a, a strange man who lived just in the hills up above Dingwall, between Dingwall and, and Conan. Conan Bridge, Maryborough, on the Brani State, which is where the Seaforce, the Mackenzies stayed. And he could, he foretold a lot of things like the coming of electricity to, to Inverness, um, the railway lines coming in, um, various things. He actually foretold of one of the daughters killing off her sister. And they got it right. And got it right, yes. And there's actually a monument to her on the road up to Conton. Um, she came back from the, the widowhood. She was dressed in white because she had come back from India mourning the death of her husband, I believe. Um, and uh, she was riding a carriage with her sister and lost control and her sister died. So, so are you a believer then in the bronze era? I know there's many people that think that it's just an invention from uh, Alexander Mackenzie, uh, who, who wrote much in the history of the Mackenzies. Are you somebody that, that, that believes in this? this I, I think it did exist, yes. Okay. I think so, yeah. Uh-huh. So is there any historical records that you guys have come across that you uh, have a reason to believe this? I haven't gone looking, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just thought maybe you guys might have something. When you, get, when, you get hold of some, when you get hold of something, you just want to grow arms and legs and go looking in it. It takes so much time to go. So sure. and I think most of the records are, are held in Inverness now, so... And that's true, isn't it? We sometimes want to hang on to these stories that have been told to us from, from so long ago. And as Alexander Mackenzie noted in his book, uh, these are stories that have been passed down from generation to generation. And they've just been widely accepted as truth for some period of time. Uh, as we've seen, Phyllis, uh, Hannah, accepts them as truth. Perhaps she wants to see truth in them. But is it true? Does it matter? Well, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. We sat down with 
Andrew McKenzie, author of the book, May We Be Britons. And we talked to him about his understanding of Conic Ore, the Bronze Seer, and how it was that this man came to exist. So the question is, is the Bronze Seer a real person? Um, I, but probably the short answer is no, but I think there are, there are historical persons that, that fit, fit him. I, I think actually Elizabeth Sutherland, who wrote the, um, ed, who sort of edited Alexander Mackenzie's book in, in a, edition in the 1970s probably got it right because her view was that it was a it was really a, a sort of congregation of oral traditions which were then sort of fitted together and all put put in the name of one person um, which is the nature of oral tradition and um, you have sort of historical memories which are recorded orally, never written down, and then over time other stories get attached to them and then they they form a, another story in its own right. And, and I, th there are elements of history which fit, and by the end of the 19th century when Alexander Mackenzie was writing, there'd there'd been a fuller story and he sort of put put them all together from what he'd heard in local traditions. I don't think he made it up by any means. I don't think that was in his in his nature. He was accused of making it up, but um he he was actually a, a very useful collector of oral tradition. That was folklore. He that's what he that's what he's best known for and that that's what he enjoyed doing and I, I think we should be grateful to him for recording all this stuff because if it weren't for him we we probably wouldn't know about it it would have been lost so how did it why do you think then that he pegged it onto a guy named kenneth mckenzie you know well, like, there is, a collaboration of these stories but why did he put it all into one one guy william, william matheson who's another he's a 20th century historian who collected folk tales and uh, actually perhaps more interestingly than Alice, Alexander Mackenzie, he, he looked for the history behind, behind the folklore, which is what particularly interests me. That's what I enjoy doing. And William Matheson found records of a genuine character called Konyich or actually in the in the 16th century, whereas Alexander Mackenzie's Konyich or was meant to be the end of the the 17th century, um, there was a 16th century man accused of witchcraft called Konyich or, um, and there's a there's a Scottish Parliament record from 1577. Um, which is a writ for his arrest, and and then there's another there's another 16th century document. So there was actually a genuine 
Konyakor accused of witchcraft. And I think that very convincingly fits Alexander Mackenzie's story. Um, so that is perhaps the first evidence for, for someone around which the legend was shaped. Um, my brother Kevin actually made the very pertinent point that the name Konyak or is almost identical to the third of the fourth's name, which was Konyak Moor, which means Konyak Or means sallow Kenneth. Konyak Moor means great Kenneth, which is possibly because he was very tall and a big man, but also because he was the clan chief. So he was great in, in that sense. And interestingly, the, the, the legend that Alexander Mackenzie reports surrounds Isabel, his countess, the third earl's countess. So it ties in very nicely with and the other point about the third Earl of Seaforth, Cognich Moore, is that as the Duke of Lauderdale, who was a political rival of his um, because he had second sight. Um, actually, there's a letter from the Dean of um, the Dean of Winchester to Pepys, Samuel Pepys, the diarist, um, which refers to the third Earl of Seaforth. shipwreck um, which saved the lives of some friends of his on a, a ship going from, from London um, and so again you've got so you've got Coyne whose seat was Brussels so Coyne Moore could easily be described as the Bran Seer so I I would suggest that 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 was then attached to the earlier Konyak Orr, who was tried for witchcraft, and the two stories were interposed with the story of Isabel, Countess of Seaforth, Konyak Moore's wife, burning Konyak Orr as a witch on Shamanry Point. Um, uh, the, another element of the story is that he was meant to, um, the, the third Earl, Isabel's husband, was meant to have been at the French court and the, the Brancier saw him with a pretty girl on his knee. And that was the reason why Countess Isabel got so jealous mm. um, and took it out on the, the Brancier. Um, of course, the, his grandson, the fifth Earl of Seaforth, was at the French court, and that and that must have had a bit impact locally. It was to, to have spent time at the French court at that point would have sounded very glamorous to people locally. That that would have been in their collective memory at the time. Um, and also, Isabel had a very strong personality. There are lots of local letters and diaries which refer to her as being rather a formidable, not a very pleasant character. So again, that got 
that would have been remembered by people locally. So my my take on it was that all these local memories were sort of over time superimposed on each other and they made up one one big story which by the by the 19th century was the story that Alexander Mackenzie was was quoting he was collecting various elements from 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 different people yeah so <clears throat> that's an interesting perspective uh, with regards to the bronze seer being able to have some kind of a you mentioned second sight um a lot of times you hear stories of these people that are kind of described as Nostradamus I think bronze seer gets called the Scottish Nostradamus um what were the ways that Alexander Mackenzie described the bronze seer as receiving his his uh second sight was it through like dreams or was it through visions or what was it that he was able to he had something called us a, a seeing stone according to Alexander Mackenzie um which was a stone with a a hole in it um which I think he was meant to have found on he came from the Isle of Lewis from Ewig on the Isle of Lewis and he was meant to have found that stone and by looking through it he was meant to have had visions and um, supposedly he threw it in Loch Usi, which is the the lake at the top of the hill behind behind Bram Castle so maybe someone should look for it maybe a diver should look for it on, in Loch Usi somewhere and find it and get get his powers back <laughs> uh, that would be great I mean that but would I be think that, that's a that, that the idea of that that type of seeing stone is something you find particularly in Highland Highland folk tales. So that doesn't sell you. You're not sold that that was a legitimate stone that he was able to look through this character of Connie Gordon. I, I, no, I'm not. I'm not personally convinced by that. <laughs> I think again, that's probably that was latched on to the the sort of folk memories um, from from other other traditions I suspect but the prophecies that he made um he makes a lot of prophecies that people say have have happened we don't have to talk about the specifics but you know a lot of times in in religious literature where there's prophecies made maybe the bible you're, you could think about <clears throat> how there's stories of things taking place a destruction of a city so to speak and then um, it happens, but historians look back and they say, well, it was written after the events took place. So that's some of the charges that are laid out against the concept of the bronze here, some of the prophecies that, that Alexander brought forth, Alexander Mackenzie brought forth. Where did, Ale first off, I guess the question is, where did Alexander Mackenzie get the prophecies that he says the bronze here made? Were those also part of folklore or did Alexander Mackenzie make those prophecies up um well i i suppose he he collected them locally so he would have traveled around and collected them but i i mean there's one the one most famous one which is the the legend of seaforth's doom which was supposedly predicted which, which according to the 
Alexander Mackenzie's story when the Bronze was was condemned to death by Countess Isabel, and um, just before he was burned in a barrel of tar on Shannonry Point, he cursed the Seaforth Line, and the the story of that was that there would be I. The the story was when when Seaforth was blind, deaf and sorry, deaf and dumb, there would also be a number of other lairds, prominent lairds in Scotland at the time. One would be hair-lipped and one would be half-witted. And that was quite commonly quoted. There is evidence before Alexander Mackenzie, that that was quoted at the time when the last Lord Seaforth died and he was deaf and dumb. And what do they mean when they say dumb real fast, Andrew? Sorry? For our audience, when they say that they'd be dumb, what what do they mean by that? Um, Well, he actually, he had, um, he had, um, he was ill when he was at school. When he was young, he had I'm trying to remember what illness he had. I, I've forgotten offhand, but um, as a result of that, he he was he he was handicapped. He was he he couldn't speak, and he was deaf. Um, I mean, despite that, he he managed to be a remarkably accomplished politician. Went on to become governor of. Barbados, so was was a quite an impressive character despite his disabilities, um, and and but that that was that was quoted by people like Walter Scott um, at the time when he died, and and again this quote was of the various lairds with disabilities was was quoted, but actually. The same, this, this fitted a, a formula which had been repeated before. There was a very similar prediction that was said to have been repeated, and it's actually written by James Fraser, who's a, who was the Minister of Ward Law in, at the end of the 17th century. And when the tutor of Lubbock, um, Sorry, when when the when Lord Lovett was born in in seventeen sixty six. Sorry, in sixteen sixty six, um, there was a similar story. This was meant to be a very ominous fact about his birth. That it was prophesied that that extraordinary things would happen when certain lairds with disabilities coincided at the same time. And when when Lord Lovett was born in 1666, it coincided with a black-kneed Mackenzie, a black-spotted Lovett, a squint-eyed Mackintosh, and a Chisholm who was blind of one eye. Um, And Thomas Pennant, who's the 18th century travel writer, again in the in about 1760 reported a very similar story 
of lairds with disabilities. So there was this, this formula which was already there and it was, as it were, made to fit the pattern when Lord Seaforth died. And the interesting fact to me about that was um, that the, me, I, I remember when I was uh, doing my history degree, I, I went to a lecture by Keith Thomas, who is a very eminent historian who wrote about anthropology and um, his famous book was Religion and the Decline of Magic. It was all about magic and the scientific revolution. And um, the point that he made about prophecies was that they tend to appear at times of crisis. Um, they're invented to soften the impact of uncomfortable changes, sort of big, major, disastrous changes that occur. And by 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 sort of putting a prophecy behind them, they it somehow bestows the sanction of inevitability and it makes them more comfortable and easier to to cope with. And the 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 death of the last sea fourth was quite a major calamity at the time. It was the end of the male line of the Mackenzie chiefs who had a sort of amazing presence in that part of the world and, and Ross and Cromarty for a large locality for, for several centuries and suddenly for the Mackenzies to end the male line was a, a devastating blow locally so it would have had a big, big impact on collective memory so this, this was a way of providing a sort of sanction for a for a major change. So I, I think what I think Elizabeth Sutherland's idea of sort of a sort of collective folk memory superimposing different historical stories onto one memory with Keith Thomas's argument that these sort of prophecies are invented to soften the blow of big major historical changes. I think that that fits perfectly the, the story of Seaforth's doom. This topic of the bronze seer is one that has been uh, debated and uh, argued for, for centuries. Did the man exist? Um, great insight today from our two guests. We look forward to our next episode on the bronze seer. And in that episode, we're actually going to talk about the prophecies of the bronze seer. We're going to talk about the ones that took place and the ones left still unfulfilled. I hope you enjoyed the music at the intro of our podcast this week. It's called The Bronze Seer, and it's performed by Paul Anderson. Now, he not only does such a beautiful job of playing this song, but he's also the composer. So as we end, and we look forward to seeing you again next time, enjoy. Paul Anderson, the Braun Seer. <laughs>